Okay. If you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. So uh, for for weeks now, I've been uh, I've been on a roll doing a, a series of what I call one of messages. And um, last week uh, was on the power of vulnerability. Uh, and as part of that message, we watched a video by uh, a Dr. Benet Brown that was just wonderful. Um, if you haven't seen that, uh, it's available online. It's been viewed by I don't know 15 million people or something. Uh, powerful message. Uh, and today, um, kind of spurred on or inspired by that, I'd like to show another one of her videos uh, titled uh, Listening to Shame, which kind of fits into you know, some of the things we've already shared. Last week, um, like last week, I'll make a few introductory comments. We'll watch our 20-minute video. And then after it, I want to make some application to, to us here at the Charlottetown Vineyard. And then we'll have some time for prayer. Uh, but let's, uh, let's begin uh, with a verse of Scripture, John 13, verses 34 and 35. Very familiar verses uh, for you guys. It says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. Such powerful verses. And I'll work my way back to them. So last week... Uh, vulnerability was the topic. This week's topic is shame. The, uh, the presenter of the video is a Dr. Brene Brown. She has her PhD in social work. She's a professor at the University of Houston. A three-time New York Times bestseller, best-selling author. One of the most popular speakers on uh, TED.com. If you haven't ever been to that web- website, TED.com, wonderful place to get just a creative, innovative, outside-the-box thinking, 20-minute uh, presentations. That's where I found uh, Benny Brown. She's one of their all-time most popular uh, presenters, speakers. She's a wife, a mother, and a follower of Jesus. And so today's video is titled Listening to Shame. And this presentation takes place two years after uh, the video that we watched last week. And she makes reference to it. It was recorded at the, at the TED uh, dot com 2012 conference at uh, Long Beach Performing the Arts Center in Long Beach, California. So why don't we um, why don't we watch that video, and I'll come back and make a few comments afterwards. house for about three days. 
The first time I left was to meet a friend for lunch. And when I walked in, she was already at the table. I sat down. She said, God, you look like hell. I said, thanks. Um, I feel really, I, I'm, I'm not functioning. She said, what's going on? And I said, I just told 500 people that I became a researcher to avoid vulnerability and that when being vulnerable emerged from my data as absolutely essential to wholehearted living, I told these 500 people that I had a breakdown. I had a slide that said breakdown. At what point did I think that was a good idea? And she said, I saw your talk last thing. It was, it was not really you. Um, it was a little different than what you usually do, but it was great. And I said, this can't happen. YouTube, they're putting this thing on YouTube. And we're going to be talking about 600, 700 people. <laughs> and she said, well, I made videos. She liked it. And I said, let me ask you something. And she said, yeah. I said, do you remember when we were in college and really wild and kind of dumb? She said, yeah. I said, remember when we leave a really bad message on our ex-boyfriend's answering machine? Then we have to break into his dorm room and then erase the tape. <laughs> and she goes, uh, no. <laughs> so for the other guy who didn't say that, I was, yeah, me neither. Uh, that, 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 yeah, I don't, yeah, me neither. And I'm thinking to myself, Renee, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why did you bring this up? Have you lost your mind? Your sisters would be perfect for this. So I looked back up and she said, are you really going to try to break in and steal the video before they put it on YouTube? And I said, I'm just thinking about it a little bit. She said, you're like the worst vulnerability role model ever. And then I looked at her and I said something that at the time felt a little dramatic, but ended up being more prophetic than dramatic. I said, if 500 turns into 1,000 or 2,000, my life is over. I had no contingency plan for 4 million. Uh, <laughs> and my life didn't end. What happened? And maybe the hardest part about my life ending is that I learned something hard about myself, and that was that as much as I would be frustrated about not being able to get my work out to the world, there was a part of me that was working very hard to engineer staying small, staying right under the radar. But I want to talk about what I've learned. There's two things that I've learned in the last year. Um, the first is, vulnerability is not weakness. And that myth is profoundly dangerous. Let me ask you honestly, and I'll give you this this morning. I'm trained as a therapist, so I can outweigh you uncomfortably. Uh, so if you could just raise your hand, that would be awesome. Um, how many of you honestly, when you're thinking about doing something vulnerable or saying something vulnerable, Thank God, vulnerability is weakness. This is weakness. How many of you think of vulnerability and weakness anonymously? The majority of people. 
Now let me ask you this question. This past week at TED, how many of you, when you saw vulnerability up here, thought it was pure courage? Vulnerability is not weakness. I define vulnerability as emotional risk, exposure, uncertainty. It fuels our daily lives. And I've come to the belief, this is my 12th year doing this research, that vulnerability is our most accurate measurement of courage. To be vulnerable, to let ourselves be seen, to be honest. One of the weird things that happened after the TED explosion, um, I got a lot of offers to speak all over the country. Um, everyone from schools and parent meetings to Fortune 500 companies. Um, and so many of the calls went like this. Hey, Dr. Brown, we'd like your TED talk. We'd like you to come in and speak. We'd appreciate it if you wouldn't mention vulnerability or shame. <laughs>
can't really imagine what it's like for me in a faculty meeting. <laughs> so when I became vulnerability Ted, I'm an action figure. I'm into Barbie, but I'm vulnerability Ted. Um, I thought I'm gonna leave that shame stuff behind because I spent six years studying shame before I really started writing and talking about vulnerability. And I thought, thank God, because shame is a horrible topic. No one wants to talk about it. It's the best way to shut people down on an airplane. What do you do? I say shame. Oh. Uh, and I see you. Uh, but in surviving this last year, I was reminded of a cardinal rule. Not a research rule, but a moral imperative from my upbringing. You've got to dance with the one who brung you. And I did not learn about vulnerability and courage and creativity and innovation from studying vulnerability. I learned about these things from studying shame. And so I want to walk you in to shame. You need an animal called shame, the small plan of the soul. And we're going to walk in, and the purpose is not to walk in and, you know, construct a home and live there. It is to put on some galoshes and walk through and find our way around. Here's why. We heard the most compelling call ever to have a conversation in this country, and I think globally, around race, right? Yes, we heard that. Yes, cannot have that conversation without shame. Because you cannot talk about race without talking about privilege. And when people start talking about privilege, they get paralyzed by shame. We heard a brilliant, simple solution to not killing people in surgery, which is have a checklist. You can't fix that problem without addressing shame. Because when they teach those folks how to suture, they also teach them how to stitch their self-worth to be all powerful. And all powerful folks don't need checklists. And I had to write down the name of this head fellow so I didn't mess it up here. Michigan Ingalala. I hope I did right. How are you? I saw this head fellow's record here and he got up and he explained how he was driven to create some technology to help test our anemia because people were dying unnecessarily. And he said, I saw this need, so you know what I did, I made it. And everybody just burst into applause, and they were like, yes! And he said, and it didn't work. And then I made it 32 more times. And then it worked. You know what the big secret about TED is? I can't wait to tell people this. I, I guess I'm doing it right now. Um, this is like the failure conference. No, it is. You know why this place is amazing? Because very few people here are afraid to fail. And no one that gets on the stage so far that I've seen has not failed. I have failed miserably. Many times. I don't think the world understands that. Because of shame. There's a great quote that saved me this past year by Theodore Roosevelt. Um, a lot of people refer to it as a man the arena quote. And it goes like this. It is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who sits and points out how the doer of the deeds could have done things better and how he falls and stumbles, 
the credit goes to the man in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and blood and sweat. But when he's in the arena at best, he wins. At worst, he loses. But when he fails, when he loses, he does so daring greatly. And that's what this conference to me is about. That's what life is about, about daring greatly, about being in the arena. When you walk up to that arena and you put your hand on the door and you think, I'm going in and I'm going to try this, shame is a gremlin who says, uh-uh, you're not good enough. You never finished that NBA. Your wife lost you. I know your dad really wasn't in Luxembourg. He was in Sing Sing. I know you, there's things that happened to you growing up. I know you don't think that you're pretty enough or smart enough or talented enough or powerful enough. I know your dad never paid attention, even when you made CFO. Shame is that thing. And if we can quiet it down and walk in and say, I'm going to do this, we look up and a critic that we see pointing and laughing, 99% of the time, is who? Us. Shame drives two big takes. Never good enough. And if you can talk it out of that one, who do you think you are? The thing to understand about shame is it's not guilt. Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. How many of you, if you did something that was hurtful to me, would be willing to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake? How many of you would be willing to say that? Guilt. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame. I'm sorry, I am a mistake. There's a huge difference between shame and guilt. And here's what you need to know. Shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. And here's what you even need to know more. Guilt inversely correlated with those things. The ability to hold something we've done or failed to do up against who we want to be is incredibly adaptive. It's uncomfortable, but it's adaptive. The other thing you need to know about shame is it's absolutely organized by gender. If shame washes over me and washes over Chris, it's going to feel the same. Everyone sitting in here knows the warm wash of shame. We're pretty sure that the only people who don't experience shame are people who have no capacity for connection or empathy. Which means, yes, I have a little shame, no, I'm a sociopath. So I would opt for, yes, you have a little shame. Shame feels the same for men and women, but it's organized by gender. For women, the best example I can give you is Anjali, the commercial. I can put the wash on the line, pack the lunches, hand out the kisses, and be work at five to nine. I can bring home the bacon, buy it up in the pan, and never let you forget you're a man. For women, shame is do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. I don't know how much perfume that commercial sold, but I guarantee you it moved a lot of antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. Shame for women is this web of unattainable, conflicting, competing expectations about who we're supposed to be. And it's a straitjacket. For men, shame is not a bunch of competing, conflicting expectations. Shame is one. 
do not be perceived as what? Weak. I did not interview men for the first four years of my study, and it wasn't until a man looked at me one day after a book signing and said, I love what you have to say about shame. I'm curious why you mention men. And I said, I don't study men. And he said, that's convenient. And I said, why? And he said, because you say to reach out, tell our story, be vulnerable. But you see those books you just signed for my wife and my three daughters? I said, yeah. They'd rather me die on top of my life horse than watch me fall down. When we reach out and be vulnerable, we get the shit out of us. And don't tell me it's some are the guys and the coaches and the dads. Because the women in my life are harder on me than anyone else. So I started interviewing men and asking questions. And what I learned is this. You show me a woman who can actually sit with a man with vulnerability and fear, I'll show you a woman who's done incredible work. You show me a man who can sit with a woman who's just had it, she can't do it all anymore, and his first response is not, I unloaded the dishwasher. But he really listens. Because that's all we need. I'll show you a guy who's done a lot of work. Shame is an epidemic in our culture. And to get out from underneath it, to find our way back to each other, we have to understand how it affects us and how it affects the way we're parenting, the way we're working, the way we're looking at each other. Very quickly, some research from a colleague at Boston College asked, what do women need to do to conform to female norms? The top answers in this country, not extend modest and use all available resources for parents. When he asked about men, what do men in this country need to do to conform with male norms? The answers were, Always show emotional control, work is first, pursue status, and violence. If we're going to find our way back to each other, we have to understand and know empathy, because empathy is the antidote to shame. If you put shame in a petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you put the same amount of shame in a petri dish and gossip with empathy, it can't survive. The two most powerful words when we're in struggle, me too. And so I'll leave you with this thought. If we're going to find our way back to each other, vulnerability is going to be that path. And I know it's seductive to stand outside the arena because I think I did it my whole life and think to myself, I'm going to go in there and kick some ass when I'm bulletproof and when I'm perfect. And that is seductive. But the truth is, that never happens. And even if you got as perfect as you could and as bulletproof as you could possibly muster, when you got in there, that's not what we want to see. We want you to go in. We want to be with you and across from you. And we just want for ourselves and the people we care about and the people we work with to do greatly. So thank y'all very much. I really appreciate it. Ooh, wasn't that good? Just powerful presentation, right? Twenty minutes.
found that it, um, it impacted me uh, deeply the, the first time I watched it. Can any of you guys relate to some of the things that she uh, had to say? Yeah, I bet a bunch of you could. I so appreciate her honesty and her transparent vulnerability, you know, about, you know, being the, the worst vulnerability role model, you know, telling her story after the, after the first uh, video came out. So let me, um, let me offer some comments on what we just heard. I'll, I want to quote Bene Brown a bit and add my own commentary to it, and, and we'll finish up with prayer. She said, as much as I would be frustrated about not being able to get my work out to the world, there was a part of me that was working very hard to engineer staying small, staying right under the radar. Anybody else relate to that? Boy, I tell you what, I could so absolutely relate to that mindset, you know? And why is that? Why, why do we wrestle with that type of feeling? It's basically because we don't want to be vulnerable. And we don't want to be vulnerable because we don't want to become the targets of critics, right? So if we could just stay under the radar, or the analogy she used of being outside the arena, then nobody could take pot shots at us. I love that she said vulnerability is not weakness. And I think in our own hearts and minds, when we, when we consider vulnerability for ourselves, we can recognize that as courage. Um, but sometimes in the lives of other people, we have this, this mixed notion that vulnerability is weakness, but it, it truly isn't. It's, it's quite brave. And she defined vulnerability as emotional risk, as exposure, and uncertainty. That she'd come to believe that vulnerability is our most accurate measure of courage. This, when I heard this, it reminded me of the very first time I heard John Wimber speak. Wimber's the, the founder of the Vineyard, the organization that we're part of. And I remember the first time listening to him speak, and he would tell stories of, about praying for the sick and them being healed. And I thought that was awesome. But he would also tell stories about praying for the sick, and they weren't healed. I so appreciate um, how honest he was and how vulnerable he was. I remember looking at him and thinking, nobody shares the stories of their failures, right? We only, we only like to present our highlight reel to the rest of the world. It's like, he, he was telling it like it really is. I'm thinking, I can't relate to this guy. Because yeah, I've had some good things happen. I've had bad things happen too. I said, I could trust this guy. There's, there's great value that's birthed um, through vulnerability. And I think, I think one of those values is we're able to connect more authentically with one another. I love that she said vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, creativity, and change. And all of us, no matter what area of where our lives are at, what our lives look like, we could all benefit from additional innovation, additional creativity, and healthy changes in our lives. The church the whole church, church worldwide, is in desperate need of innovation, creativity, and change. And I'm convinced that Bernie Brown is right. The way forward in those areas is vulnerability. And it was at this point that she shifted her, her talk um, from vulnerability to the topic of shame. And um, it's really what I wanted to emphasize today. She said that shame was the swampland of the soul. Oh, boy, is that true? And then she talked about failure and how the people at TED, they were amazing, not because they'd never failed, but because they failed again and again and again and refused to stop trying, right? They weren't afraid to fail. They were the people, she said, who had dared greatly. 
And then she shared the great uh, Theodore Roosevelt quote. She only gave a portion of it. Let me share the whole quote with you. Powerful quote. She says, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again and again, because there's no effort without error or shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, or who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. How powerful is that? Isn't that a powerful quote? I want to be a man who lives a life of daring greatly. I so desperately want that. And even if it means I fail again and again and again, to never give up daring greatly. Now, inspired by this quote, Brene Brown says this. And I, I, when I read this, it so impacted me that I printed it out and I hung it on a wall in my home office. She says, nothing has transformed my life more than realizing that it is a waste of time to evaluate my worthiness by weighing the reaction of the people in the stands. If I'm in the arena, I don't want to give a root and toot and nothing. Clean that up for a kid from Brooklyn. <laughs> About the critics in the stands. I don't care. I care about them, but I don't want their criticism to be the measuring stick for my worthiness and my value. Does that make sense? I want to dare greatly. How about you? I can tell you that since accepting Jesus, I have lived an unconventional life of daring greatly. I did everything different than the rest of my family did. <laughs> everything. Life has not always been easy, but it's been one great adventure after another for Nadine and I. All too often, the thing that stands between us daring greatly or choosing not to dare greatly is shame. It's the obstacle, it's the wall. It's the hindrance. It's, it's the thing that prevents us from stepping into the arena. As she said, it's the gremlin who says, you're not good enough. Or it says, who do you think you are? And I've answered those two questions. And I've, this is the reality I've come to. I'm not good enough. And it's never been about how good I am. What's been liberating for me, it's about how good God is. And who do I think I am? I am his son. I am son of God the Father. And he loves me lavishly and extravagantly. Those are the very realities that empower me to work past shame, enter the arena, and dare greatly once again. Oh, I have energy for this, can you tell me? And she talked a little bit about shame versus guilt. Shame is a focus on self. 
Guilt is a focus on our behavior. So shame says I am bad. Guilt says I did something bad. Shame is highly correlated. And I thought this was really powerful for us to know. It's highly correlated to addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. That's a sobering reality. Our culture could do with a whole lot less shame. Because we could do with a whole lot less addiction and violence and aggression and suicide and bullying and so on. And she talked about how shame was organized by gender. Right? She said, for women, it's to do it all, do it perfectly, never let them see you sweat. She talked about that Anjali commercial. Nadine tapped me on the shoulder, I was standing in the back. She says, for Christian women, it's Proverbs 31. That's the standard we can't ever live up to. Ain't that the truth? How many of you like to rip that page out of the Bible and just (laughs) never have to hear about it ever again? Because it's like, it doesn't matter how hard I try, it's never good enough. Oh, thank God for a new covenant. Shameful women, she said, is this web of unattainable, conflicting, competing expectations about who we're supposed to be, and it's a straitjacket. Jesus says, I came that you would know life, and life abundantly. Paul said that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. That sounds like no straitjackets to me. Can any of you ladies identify with this, or is this foreign to you? Some of you guys can identify. Now, for men, it's completely different. She said, for men, it's one thing. And I remember the first time I listened to this, she says, she said, for men, do not be perceived as, and then she paused. And before she said it, I knew what it was. Do not be perceived as weak. Right? That's the great mountain of shame that stumped on us. Do not be perceived as weak. And so it makes it terrifying for a man to be vulnerable. It makes it terrifying for a man to let his shields down and let his heart be open and tell another person, let alone a whole room full of people or a whole world full of people, that this is what's happened to me or that's what's happened to me. Or God speaks to me in strange and weird ways and, oh, my God, (laughs) will they throw me out of the church if they know the truth? Struck me to the core. Men, can you identify with that? Never be perceived as weak? The cultural norms, boy, I thought she was right on the money for women. Nice, thin, modest. Use all available resources for appearance. For men, always show emotional control. Work is first. Pursue status and violence. You know what? All of that is performance-based. All of that is, is appearance-based. It's all a facade. It's all a mask. And, as much, and, it, and it is as much in play in the church, unfortunately, as it is in the world. And I want this to change. And she talked about the relationship between men and women and when we're vulnerable with one another. She said, show me a woman who can actually sit with a man in real vulnerability and fear, and I'll show you a woman who's done incredible work. I can tell you what, Nadine has been amazing for me in this area. And we, she's so needed for me to show weakness. I so lived with that mantra, never let them see you be weak. And then what happened? About 10 years ago, I got diagnosed with cancer for the first time. And I could not hide my weakness. It didn't matter how much strength I could try and muster up. 
the drugs that they were putting in me that killed the cancer was, was having a debilitating impact on my body. And I had no choice but to reveal my weakness to her. I hated it. I hated it. If I, had, if I could have done it some other way, I would have. It was completely out of my control. You know what Nadine told me? Now, at this point, we'd been married for 25 years, longer. She says, for the first time, I realized that you need me. What a horrible indictment that is to how I presented myself for her for the previous 25 years. I've always needed her, desperately needed her. But somehow, in this desire to be strong and not be vulnerable, to avoid shame, I had so presented myself to the woman I love most in the world, who loves me more than anyone, and she was not convinced that I needed her because of my failure to show weakness, because of my failure to be vulnerable. It took cancer. Lord have mercy to change that. But she sat with me in that weakness, and she loved me in that weakness. It was amazing. Sometimes she'll ask me, Tom, why do you love me? I say, all those hours. I sat there with that needle in my arm. You were sitting next to me. That's why I love you. Let's start there. And the list can go on. She was there for me when I was weak. Then he said, show me a man who could sit with a woman who's just had it and really listens. And I'll show you a guy who's done his work. Men, listen to me. This is an extraordinarily practical way that you can love the women in your life. Wholeheartedly listen to them. With undivided attention, listen to them. It's a wonderful and practical way of expressing love to the women in your life. It works for Nadine. It works for my daughter. I've done lots of counseling with women over the years. It's very effective for them. You know what I've discovered with most people, and it's true of both men and women, they don't need me to tell them what to do. They need me to listen. They need to be able to talk it all the way through. If, if you don't know how to love the woman in your life, a wife, a daughter, a mother, friend, Listen to them. Really listen to them. Don't, don't give them the eyes glazed over thing, you know. <laughs> she said shame is epidemic in our culture, and it is. Shame is a, is a weapon in religion, in politics, social media, television. It's everywhere. It's a powerful tool used to control and manipulate people. And I'm so grateful that she told us the way out, and it's this. It's empathy. Empathy is the way out. It's our way back to one another. It's the key. It's the antidote to shame. She said, shame needs three things to grow exponentially. And I wish I could say this wasn't at work in the church, but it is so at work in the church. Shame needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Lord have mercy. She said, douse shame with empathy, and it cannot survive that the two most powerful words when we're in struggle is this. Me too. I'm all for trading in secrecy and silence and judgment for empathy. Who's with me? <laughs> that sounds like a God thing, doesn't it? Okay, so why did I share this today? Why did I share this video this week in the power of vulnerability last week? And why am I going to share a third and final video by Dr. Brown next Sunday. 
I'm doing it for this reason. Guys, we need one another. We desperately need one another. We need the real versions of one another. Do you realize when God created us, He did not create us to be independent, self-sufficient, and totally under our own control. He created us with the need for other people. And it's just scientifically, it's evident in so many ways. Emotional connection happens right after birth when, when the mom holds the baby. Right? To create life, it takes more than one person. It's not like I can just like, oh, I want to have a baby. Mm, pop one out of my hand, right? <laughs> takes another person. This is the way that God created us. He created us with the need for one another. He created us with a need for, for connection and, and for community. We need one another. We need the real versions of one another and not the fake versions of one another. I need the real you and you need the real me. I love, I so love Nadine. She's a, just a passionate love of my life. And she's, you spent any time with her, you know that she's filled with, with, with life and with energy and she's vivacious. And, you know, somewhere early on in our marriage, I came to this reality. Just let Nadine be Nadine. That I didn't become her husband so that I could somehow pull the reins back on her or try to control her or shape her into what the, what the ideal version of the pastor's wife is supposed to be. Right? That would just kill her. And so over the years, I've just got, just let Nadine be Nadine. And, and the full version of who she really is is extremely life-giving to people. I love that about you, babe. I do. So I desperately want this community to be as real as possible and to be as authentic as possible, even if it's messy. And I'm sad that the North American church especially has become so proficient at hiding and at wearing masks. We're so good at it. I, I want to be done with that. I want no more hiding, no more mask wearing. Or can we at least start with less hiding and less mask wearing? I'll, I'll begin there. For anybody who wants to go on that journey. There's an old Japanese proverb. It says, the nail that sticks out shall be hammered down. Right? All too often, the name of that hammer is shame, and it's being wielded by religion. And it ought not be. It especially ought not be in the church. Last week, Dr. Brown defined shame as the fear of disconnection. And this is what shame communicates. Conform or be ostracized. Get in, get in line, or get out, right? Conform to our cultural standard, or go find yourself another community. It ought not be that way. That's what shame does. It grieves me that the church has become experts at shame slinging. And we can do it overtly, or we can do it with masterful subtlety. We feel free shaming people for having too much or having too little. We shame one another for too much of an emphasis on this or too much of an emphasis on that, right? Too much of the gifts, not enough of the gifts. How about evangelism? What about the laws? Social justice, ministry to the poor. Who comes to church? Who doesn't? The worship, the preaching. My needs aren't being met. I'm not being fed. Oh. The litany of it. 
Well, because of theological differences. And I got to tell you, for the life of me, I don't understand how any of that stuff fits into the text I started with today from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. How does any of that fit into a new command I give you? Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Man, oh man, I want to get this love thing right. I really want to get this love thing right. And I suspect that it'll be easier for us to love one another. It'll be more effective. Maybe easier is it the right word. We will actually love one another if we can be vulnerable. If there's grace, if there's space, if there's understanding for vulnerability. I'm thinking loving one another will happen, actually happen, if we can remove shame or shaming one another from the equation. Maybe I'm wrong. I would like to at least explore this experiment and see what we get, we get out of it. Let's try this for, I don't know, a decade, and then come back and we can discuss it again and see if... <clears throat> The presence of vulnerability, absence of shame, makes it easier to love. I mean, uh, it'd be a nice experiment. <laughs> I really want to get this love thing right. Does it really matter if we get everything else right and we get the love thing wrong? It reminds me of the First Corinthians 13, the first three verses. Paul says this: "If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbals." If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. You know what that says to me? That says you can be any kind of church you want. You can be a spirit-filled church, speaking tongues of men and angels, gift of prophecy, mountain-moving faith. Or you could be a church that's, you know, emphasizes an academic intellectual approach to you know biblical knowledge and understanding of the faith you know fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge or you could be an outreach orientated social justice type of church give all I possess to the poor we can have any emphasis you want give over my body to hardship but without love and I've seen churches all those types of churches do all those things and do them without loving one another Scripture says, if we do all that stuff, whatever kind of church you want to be, if we do that without love, we're resounding gongs, playing cymbals. It says we're nothing, we gain nothing. None of it. None of it matters without love. When Jesus was asked what's the most important thing, he said in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. I want to love God passionately. I want to love people passionately. I want to lead a group of people who love wholeheartedly. And I'm convinced that that's going to actually happen. It's going to require vulnerability to get there. And along the way, we may have to slay a dragon or two of shame. I want to, I'm ready to cut that thing down. Amen. What if? What if? The Charlotte 
Town Vineyard was so loving that it became a safe environment for people to dare greatly. What might come of a group even this size if daring greatly was encouraged and not suppressed? What if, what if we chose empathy over shame? What if we chose love over fear? What if we chose grace over judgment? I'd like to be part of a group that does that. I'm thinking a place that's filled with empathy, love, and grace is a place you'd want to hang out in. Probably good soil to grow in. It's probably going to bear good fruit. I'm thinking it's going to bear better fruit than a place that's known for shame, fear, and judgment. I'm concerned that the church, the whole church, is plagued with the fear of man and that shame is its weapon of mass destruction. And I've just about had enough of it. How about you? I think it's time for change. And if we're going to live free from the fear of man... We're going to need to reject shaming, and we're going to need to risk vulnerability. If that's the way forward, I guarantee you it's going to be messy, but at least it's going to be real. And when we get to the end of the road, it's not going to be something fake and phony. It'll be real, it'll be genuine, and there'll be authentic friendships that result. So, John, can I have you come back up here and... Just prepare to do another song. So I want to have I want to have a time of ministry. I'm hoping that some of what Benny Brown said or, or the things I shared have have sparked something in your heart. If you need to be free, if you need healing today from shame, come on up over to the side here. I want to pray for you. If you need to be set free from the fear of man, please come up. I want to I want to pray for you today. If you need help loving God, if you need help loving His people. Please come up on the side while John leads us in a final song. And final song, I'll be happy to, to pray for you this morning.